the Lord's Supper with the body, we witnessed a baptism, and we sang, A mighty fortress is our God. We may as well just have the benediction right now and go home. And we would if it weren't for this marvelous prayer of our Lord in John 17. I'd invite you to turn there this morning. We're going to be looking at where we picked up, uh, where we left off last week, verses 14 through the end of the chapter. So, John 17, 14 through 26. And if you'd please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. This is God's Word. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by truth. Your word is truth. As you send me into the world, I also send them into the world. For their sake, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone but for those also who would believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may know, the world may believe that you sent me. The glory with which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am. So that they may see my glory with which you have, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father. Although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Well, just so you know, I went back and forth on the title of today's message, Over the past couple of weeks, as we've considered our Lord's Prayer, the real Lord's Prayer of John 17, I've asked you all to consider your own eternity. To consider your own death. How one day, any day, in fact any second, you could very well breathe your last breath of air. To consider that moment when we will be met with not only the real presence of our Creator, but also the revelation of the eternal destination of our everlasting soul, which is either one of two places, either everlasting life in heaven or everlasting death in hell. The message and application for our time has been clear. Now, not then, is the time to consider this reality. To consider where your soul will reside for all of eternity. Now is the time to plead with your God to spare you from his wrath. Plead with God to spare him 
you from his wrath and save you by the finished work of Christ. Week one, sinners in the heart of the praying God as this prayer from God to God began. As mere moments from Judas, we are mere moments from Judas sweeping in to betray God incarnate. God the Son prayed to God the Father to glorify him through what was about to take place, namely his sacrificial, substitutionary, atoning, sin-atoning death for those sinners, that they would be reconciled to his Father and spend their eternity in his presence, where he will dwell among them. They shall be his people. God himself will be among them. Revelation 21. Last week we heard Jesus pray, pray with certainty that in the eyes of the all-knowing, all-omniscient God who has declared the end from the beginning, that this reconciliation had already happened. That though this sacrifice would be played out in time and space, the Father had already possessed, in fact, had already chosen a people for whom His Christ would die, those who belonged to the Father. Specifically, Jesus spoke of these 11 men who sat before Him this night. They were yours. You gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Father, keep them in your name. Verse 6. Verse 9. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world. I'm not praying for everybody. I'm not, I'm not praying for everybody here, Father. I'm praying for them. I'm praying for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. In our section today, he continues his, his prayer for the eleven specifically, but then he broadens the scope of his intercession here as he prays still, not for everyone, not for the entire world, not for every person who has ever lived, not for unbelievers who have died on, and already gone to that place of eternal torment, but for, for those who also belong to the Father and were given to the Son. Those who, as Jesus says in verse 20, who also believed through their word through the testimony of the eleven. In other words, you and me, if we truly believe. He's praying for us if we were called to believe, chosen to believe, given the ability to believe by God's sovereign grace alone. Let me ask, are you one of those this morning? Are you one of those this morning? Are you one of those who was in the heart of God 24 hours before he would be nailed to a Roman cross? Are you one of those? You say, well, how do I know? Well, do you believe? Do you believe his gospel? Now's the time to be sure. If so, then, like the 11, you are a saint. A set-apart one. One who is set apart for a purpose, for holiness. All believers are saints. Not just the ones other sinful men deem to be saints based on their meritorious accomplishments. You are all saints if you truly believe. If you hear his word this morning, if Yahweh, by his grace alone and mere good pleasure, calls you to so great, great a salvation even this morning, even if today is that day and you truly believe, then you, my brother or sister, will be a saint. Just like that. And He will keep you in His name. He will keep you until that moment of your final breath when He calls you to be home with Him in everlasting glory. 
a reality we'll consider together next week when we single out the 24th verse and meditate upon the glories of heaven. But for today, and back to the title of my sermon, my text for today talks about these 11 guys. It talks about all of us. True, born-again, regenerated, believing men and women, now transformed by sovereign grace and dwelled with the Holy Spirit of God, destined for heaven, but who are for now left in the world. So, not taken up into glory the moment we believe, but instead left here. Left in a world that hates what we believe. Left in a world that hates the gospel that we believe. In fact, we are left here in a world full of people who hate their creator. So I thought about calling this sermon, Christian, you ain't dead yet. Of course, I'd probably say aren't. Alex Strauss would smack the back of my head if he thought ain't in the sermon title. (laughs) Nevertheless, the point remains. You aren't dead. You're not dead yet. You're still here. He didn't take any of our people home to be with him last week. At least, not that I'm aware of. Chris, did you hear anything? No, I didn't hear anything. Well, maybe it'll be this week. I don't know. We don't know. But here's the point. You aren't dead yet. So, you, as a believer, were foreordained to live out at least this past week but really for an unknown, at least in our case, or an indefinite amount of time in a world that hates you. Pretty tough task, isn't it? I suppose that's why it takes the Son of God to intercede for us then. Right? That's what He does here. To pray for us. That's what He does here. As saints are in the heart of the praying God. Part 2. Let's pick up where we left off last week. Point one in your outline, uh, verse 14, Jesus prays, I have given them your word. The world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Let's just be honest this morning. The world we live in, it's corrupted. It's wicked. It's evil. It's tainted by sin. It's tainted by disease and decay and death. Tainted by sin, which entered into the world through one man, and so death spread to all men because all men sinned. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, every human being who has ever or will ever lived, all people born from Adam's line, have been operating under a curse. We are operating within a realm of death, spiritual death. I don't care where you lived, I don't care what family you were born into, we were all. All of us born into this world in that same physically alive but spiritually dead condition that Adam and Eve were were in the very moment they disobeyed God and his perfectly holy command. But if we die physically in that spiritually dead condition, in that condition of spiritual separation from God, the condition which is opposed to the things of God, yea, hates the things of God, including his word, we will spend all of eternity separated From his love. Not separated from his presence. Not separated from his sovereign lordship. 
but separated from his common love, separated from his common graces, that even unbelievers, even men and women who hate God, get to experience in this life on earth the graces of uh, the rain, the graces of sunshine, the graces of relationships, beautiful scenery, intimacy, accomplishment, laughter, art, food, etc., etc., etc. All those things and more will be gone should we die physically whilst under the curse of physical, excuse me, spiritual death. We die physically under that curse of spiritual death, we will be eternally separated from his common graces. This was the reality for all men including us in here today, including all of us in in here today, from our birth, from our conception even. We were all under this curse, and therefore we were under God's judgment already, Jesus said in John 3.18. Even before we had done anything right or wrong, good or bad, we were under God's judgment already. This was true of all of us in here at some point. And it still may be true of many of you in here at this point. Not all of us, however, as God determined from before the foundation of the world to save some out of the world, to choose some, to call them out of this world by causing them to be born again. In our natural state, we were conceived and born spiritually dead, so he must cause those who belong to him at some point whilst we're still living physically to be born again spiritually. Does that make sense? The first birth was a birth into death. Spiritual death. Therefore, we must be born again. That's right. That's where that comes from. John 3. This comes, of course, not by anything that we do, not by our good deeds, our good works, our striving after God, not by what church we attend or what denomination we're a part of, not by our confession or our creed, but only by grace alone, only through faith alone. Now, it's this word, that this message that the unbelieving world, those who are still in their sin, still, still physically alive, but in that spiritually dead condition, hate to hear. The true biblical gospel. Not easy believism. Not cheap grace. Not cultural Christianity. Not the nominal Christianity this country has been pumping out for the last 60 years. The world tolerates that all day long. But the true gospel. The true biblical gospel. The word that Jesus references here in verse 14. God's word. The message from Yahweh himself is the message they hate to hear. And if they hate the message of God, how do you think they feel about his messengers? Jesus said on this very night to these 11 men back in uh, chapter 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Now, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because of this The world hates you. 
Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. Now John, who was there that night, would go on to say the very same thing in his first epistle. Do not marvel, brothers, if the world hates you. Do not marvel if the world hates you. Paul, who would come along later, converted while on the way to persecute Christians whom he hated, would say this, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you are a true believer and you truly desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, not according to the tenets of modern-day American evangelicalism, but a truly set-apart, sanctified life where you'll be conformed into the very image of the one the world hates, you, in turn, will be despised, detested, and hated just as he was despised, detested, and hated. That's what he's saying. So here's the $64,000 question. Are you hated by the world? Are you, are you hated by the unbelieving world? Not that you yourself are causing this hatred or intentionally antagonizing the world so that you can say that you are hated by the world, but do they hate you on account of Christ's namesake? In other words, it's not hard in this day and age to get folks to be mad at you or to get folks to hate you. Just say you're a Republican or a Democrat. They'll hate you either way. It's not hard to be hated by people in this world or find ways to be persecuted in this world, even martyred in this world. But Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted, not in general, but on account of me. For my name's sake, Matthew 5. For righteousness' sake, he said. On account of my name, the name of the one who called you out of this world, the world will hate you because you no longer belong to the world, but rather you have been set apart, spiritually separated from this world. Not, however, taken out of this world, as I'm looking at you all right now, and I'm talking right now. Not taken out of this world, physically speaking. Not just yet, but that's coming. That's coming. Jesus prays to the Father concerning the eleven, I do not ask you to take them out of the world to keep them from the evil one. I asked you last week, do you believe in the devil? A literal devil? Well, I hope so. He believes in you. The prince of darkness, Grim. The prince of the power of the air, that's the god of this realm. Satan, you can see it. Just turn on the TV. God's children, however, are no longer of this realm. They are not of this world. Jesus says, even as I am not of this world. That's how far spiritually we've been removed from Satan's dominion. Spiritually speaking, we're as far away from being held captain of, of, of Satan, captive by Satan, as Christ himself. That's what he's saying. And Christ defeated Satan. Now, in a matter of years, uh, a few decades, these 11 guys who sat in front of him uh, physically, Peter, James, Matthew, Philip, soon they would be taken up out of the world. Uh, they would die physically. But for now, Jesus says, no, 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 no. Father, leave them here. Leave them in this world. 
Leave them in this world with devils filled. Leave them here to contend with the now toothless devil, though he still has influence over the unbelieving world. Leave them here to contend with Satan, who prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, looking to devour their faith, but will ultimately fail on account of my intercession for them and on account of the Spirit who will soon dwell in them. This is exactly what he said to Peter on this very night. Luke recorded it. Simon, Simon, behold, that's Peter, uh, behold, Satan has demanded to sift all of you like wheat. But I have prayed earnestly for you that your faith may not fail. And you, once you have returned, strengthened your, strengthened your brothers. He's doing the very same thing right now in this prayer. Our great high priest says, Father, I'm coming back. I kept those you've given me. I've given them your word, but I'm ready to be restored to my pre-incarnate glory. And I'm not bringing them with me. Not yet. They have a mission, a purpose. Not to be like the world. Not to be of the world. They are not of this world, but to still be in the world. More on that in a moment. But in the meantime, he prays in verse 17 that the Father would equip them, prepare them, ready them to remain in enemy territory, to remain in such a hostile environment. They think it's been rough these past three years. Travel along with me. Just wait till I leave them. Wait till I'm not here anymore. Things are going to get really messy then. It's going to be brutal. We can read about that in Acts. They must be further prepared. They must be even further set apart. Sanctify them. Set them apart for holiness. Sanctify them by your truth. By the truth. Your word is truth. Absolute divine truth revealed to them by the Holy Spirit is what will prepare them to live in this world full of hatred. Full of liars spewing their lies full of gross perversion and manipulation, rampant deception and idolatrous delusions. Spare them, Jesus says. Spare them. These eleven must be kept by your word. Your word is truth. That was part of my mission, Father, to give them your word for them to then take it to the world. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I also send them into the world. For their sake, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Now, this is very important to clarify. What does Jesus mean here when he says, I sanctify myself? Well, simply put, this means of sanctification is not one of progressive sanctification as ours is, as we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ until our final breath. Uh, being conformed not to the things of this world, but into Christ's likeness. Oh no. His sanctification here, or his being set apart unto holiness, was his coming into this world in the first place. He came into this world already perfectly holy, perfectly pure, perfectly sanctified. He was God incarnate. Emmanuel, God with us. He was set apart, as he was not a part of Adam's line, but it was conceived of in the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, God sanctified himself at his birth. Don't make me sing again. No. I'm not going to do it. 
It's been said, He is our example of perfect sanctification. And His sanctification, His being set apart, is what makes our being set apart even possible in the first place. By God-granted faith alone, He's the author and perfecter of faith, it's His faith to give us, by God-granted faith alone, Christians are born again. We're delivered from the curse. We're delivered from the penalty of our sin. Delivered from eternal torment. Delivered from eternal death. We are born again. Given new life. Made to be a new creation. Not called to heaven the very second that we believe in most cases. But left here in the world. Set apart from, called out of the world, spiritually speaking but left in the world physically until that day when he calls us home. A day we all long for. Jesus prays. And mind you, he's praying audibly here so that these guys can hear. Uh, the very same thing that he told them earlier in the night. I'm leaving this world. But not only that, you're not coming with me. I'm leaving you here. You're going to be sad. It's not going to be easy, fellas. In fact, it's going to be a battle. I'm leaving you in a war zone. Flesh and blood, other human beings, will hate you. People will slander you. People will beat you. People will kill you. The spiritual realm will hate you. Demons will hate you. Demons will try to attack you, try to ruin you. Satan, God's ancient foe, will hate you. And do all he can to destroy you, eleven men. Oh, and not only you. Verse 20.3 But every other man, woman, and child whom the Father will call to himself out of this world. Look what he says. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, the eleven, but for those also who will believe in me through their word. All of you. Right here. Now, I don't just want to pass over this here. I want you to see this in your own Bibles. Look at it with your own eyes. Hear these words, believer, and consider their magnitude. This is, this is only for believers now. Okay? If you're here, you're not saved, you're not a Christian, you're not born again, this isn't for you. You can listen in if you want, but I'm not speaking to you at this moment. And Jesus isn't praying for you at this moment. This is God the Son praying to God the Father saying, I do not ask on behalf of these eleven alone, but for those who also will believe in me through their word. Those also who would believe in me through their word. What was God thinking about 24 hours before his final breath upon this earth? Answer, you, Christian. He was thinking of you. How you would come to Him through the mission, the co-mission He gave to the eleven. So, the eleven didn't just receive the Spirit and go instantly into heaven. Well, why not? Because they had a mission. And that mission was to take what they had learned from Christ, the words of Christ, the words that Christ had been commissioned by the Father to give to them, so that they could then write down these words for future generations of sinful men and women to hear and be converted through them including some of us in this current generation. There we are this morning, some 2,000 years later, considering the first-hand testimony of the Apostle John, and some of you will be called through his words 
you will be called out of this world. That's how it works. It's been that way for thousands of years. Look at the last few uh, words of verse 20. Those who believe in me through their word. In other words, apostolic teaching. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep or obey all that I commanded you. All that I commanded you. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Acts 2.42 They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. There it is. To the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and to the prayers. That's why we do what we do here each week. We don't have time to entertain you with a concert and storytelling. Everything is centered around His Word. Around His Word. The reason Jesus left them here was so that they would take this message of reconciliation to the world. That they would preach the good news of the Gospel to all men. To all men, women, and children throughout the world so that God would then save some of those men, women, and children out of the world. That's the only reason they were left here. To give God's word. To give God's gospel. That God would be able to call his people out of the world into everlasting glory with him. Again, at the end of this gospel, John even says, It was written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. The Son of God. And that believing you may have life in His name. That's the whole reason this whole gospel was written. Have you read it? Well, so. If not, you should. It was written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Paul, another apostle, though called at a later time, told the church in Ephesus, you are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. There it is. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. He told the church in Thessalonica, We should always give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you as the first fruits for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel, that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. What gospel is our gospel? The gospel that Paul made up out of nowhere? The one that Peter, James, and John just made up? Some early denominationalism? That's Peter's church, Paul's church, Matthew's church. John's got a church over there? No way. No, no. This is the same gospel given them by Christ who left them in the world. And left us in the world to be converted by their words, instructed by their word, even commissioned ourselves to take their same apostolic word to a world that is dying. Make no mistake, that's why we're still here as well. That's the only reason we're still here. For God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. Every believer in here, every believer in this room and throughout the state and country and world are gathering together this very moment to be instructed, or maybe later, depending on the time zone, but to be instructed by his word to then scatter into this corrupted and cursed earth to tell others how they too can be saved. And the basis of it all is the Word of God. Every true believer came to faith not by some eloquent presentation or sales pitch by some guys with skinny jeans and a cool haircut. Not by some elaborate TED talk, uh, a speech rich with emotional manipulation. Not by the power of any man or men 
but only by the power of God and only through his word. The word which he inspired these 11 men and Paul to write down for us. For us, those who would believe through their word. Do you believe their word? Have you been saved by the power of their word? Because their word is his word. That's why I'm not a huge fan of those red letter Bibles. That's if the words in red are any more significant than the words when Jesus isn't, isn't directly speaking. In reality, the whole Bible ought to be red letter if we're going to go that route. For all of its words are spirit, are the, the spirit inspired, infallible, inerrant words of Jesus Christ. So in that case, you might as well give them an all black because it's easier on the eyes. I can't even read those things sometimes. Now, if you are truly born again, if you're sitting here this morning, you have God's Spirit dwelling on the inside of you. It's only because at some point you heard the Word of God from the Scriptures. Whether communicated audibly, whether you read it, this is the means by which He calls His people to Himself. Not dreams and visions. Which is why this, God's Word, His complete, sufficient, God-breathed revelation is our ultimate authority. Not man's Word. We are not saved by man's Word. We are not kept by man's Word. Forget the Word of men. It's only supplemental. But it's flawed. Heavily flawed. We are not equipped, transformed, informed, or conformed to the image of Christ by man's flawed word, but only by God's inerrant word, the word of God, which we are now able to understand, respond to, because of his very Holy Spirit who awakens the once cold, dead souls of the elect as he takes up residency within them and gives them the ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to believe the truths contained therein. You know, this is such great news. I have to do a bit of, of point five right now. Before Jesus started praying this prayer in front of the eleven, do you know what he said to the eleven? Same night, maybe an hour before this prayer, I don't know. He said this. I will ask the Father. He will give you another advocate that he may with, be with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. You know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Couple that with what he prays here in chapter 17. I'm leaving. You're not coming with me. Not yet anyhow. Okay? He told them, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. On that day, you will know that I am, in, I, I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He's talking about the Holy Spirit there. The Spirit who gives life, who gives faith, who will take up permanent residency within them, and who will unite them to God the Son, to God the Father, even to the other ten apostles. But it doesn't end there. He will unite them to every other believer who was saved at Pentecost, and to every believer since. 
including you, including me. We're all tied together. Look at verse 20. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world might know that you sent me. Stop right there. This is a call for unity, as Noel said, within the body. Now, very, very important distinction here. I wish I had another 45 minutes to explain it. But at its basic level, he's talking about true unity. Not manufactured unity, not institutional unity. In other words, not denominationalism or pathetic attempts at ecumenicalism. Not some kumbaya session where we all just agree to disagree on certain things for the sake of faux or surface-level cooperation. He's not talking about that kind of man-centered unity or temporal unity, getting along with one another despite our differences, unity, striving for common ground, unity. He's not talking about unity believers might have as as long as they try hard enough to achieve it. He's talking about the unity that true believers will have, regardless of their differences, as they all possess a common trait, namely, the Holy Spirit of God, who now dwells in them, who distinguishes them from the rest of the world. The Holy Spirit of God, who far transcends manufactured uniformity. Not man-manufactured uniformity, but rather spirit-enabled unity and for a purpose. That by the power of his spirit and his word, he would again call those out of the world unto himself. S. Lewis Johnson elaborated on this. He said, uniformity just as unanimity outwardly may exist without any unity at all. We have churches in which there is outward uniformity, but inward difference of opinion, even on the doctrine of Christ. Anyway, if we did have uniformity, would that mean that the world would believe in Jesus Christ? If we all came into the meetings, if our meetings were all together alike, would that create such an atmosphere that people would come in and say, well, they all believe in the same thing. They all do the same thing. They even follow the same order of service. I think I shall believe too. He said, I don't think that's what our Lord is talking about. That would not mean anything. We might even be suspicious of such a thing. It is perhaps that he's speaking about union then, not unanimity, not uniformity, but union. Organizational union? That is that they should all have the same affiliation. We should all be Presbyterian. We should all be Baptists or we should all be Methodists. We should all be Roman Catholics. Well, of course, we know that you can, ha- you can have that kind of union without any unity at all. Quote, We have something like that in the ecumenical movement in the World Council of Churches, in which representatives of many different churches gather together and they have an organizational affiliation, but there's differences of opinions in that orga- organization. There are some evangelicals within it. There are some rank liberals. And there are some that really shouldn't be called Christians at all. 
Remember Lloyd-Jones' famous little statement, throwing all the ecclesiastical corpses into the same grave will not produce a resurrection. (laughs) Oh, I love it. These two. S. Lewis Johnson quoting Lloyd-Jones. Oh, the benediction. Let's do it. (laughs) So he said, "If if we all join the same organization, that will not mean necessarily that we shall have true unity. End quote. Now notice, I don't know if you have that. Is theirs misspelled? Anyway, can you put that back up there? Look what he says in, about the evangelical. Notice, even in that quote, which was from the 80s, Johnson referred to, referred to the term evangelical in a positive sense. Thinking about conservative Christianity here. which was, It was positive back then. But I'm not so sure I'd take the name of evangelical four decades later. Because it means something entirely different now. I mean, Osteen is a evangelical. You have anything in common with that guy? Not me. Maybe the big teeth, but that's about it. <laughs> now, that's a perfect example of the kind of unity Christ is not talking about here in verse 23. True unity is only experienced by those who truly have the Spirit of God dwelling on the inside of them. He is the one who ties the body together. We are all members of Christ's body, knit together by the Spirit, all in submission to the head who is Christ. You can read about that in Ephesians chapter 4, where he says there is one body, just one. One Spirit, just one. Just as you were called to Uh, called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We are all many members, but we are all of the same body. Again, Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12. Only true born-again believers are united as one, just as the Father and the Son are one, he says in verse 22. His Spirit, who is also one with the Father and the Son, ties us together. He knits us together. We're like a, a climbing team that's scaling the side of an icy mountain. We, we are all tied together. We all have a rope going through our carabiners. We're all tied together by this invisible rope, the Holy Spirit of God. When one of us fails, we are all tied together and to them to lift them up, to get them back on their feet through the power of God's Word, His truths. Not to kick each other down. Not to let each other fall down the mountain. No, because we're united by God's Holy Spirit to our brothers and sisters in this room, to our brothers and sisters all around the world. We are united, sealed, and secured by God Himself. God who truly loves those who are His. Leading us to point four. Now I have to direct your attention again to your own Bibles to the end of verse 23. You've got to look at this in your own Bibles here. Now, if you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. Reach under the chair in front of you. Grab one of those Bibles out. Look at John 17 and verse 23. I'll wait for you. <clears throat> All right, are we there? Brooke, are you looking at this in your Bible? All right. Is everybody looking? I'm going to look. Bill? I don't see your Bible, brother. Oh, you're on security. Okay. You can't just take my word for it. This is too awesome. 
This statement is so incredible. Near, near the top of all statements in the Bible. Look again at verse 23. That they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. You have loved them even as much as you have loved me. My, my brothers and sisters, do you realize what a tremendous statement this is? That God the Father loves you with the same love, the same intensity, the same perfect love that He has for His very own perfect Son. His eternal Son who has always existed is co-equal, co-eternal with the Father, one with Him in essence and person, His perfect, sinless, spotless, precious Lamb whom He exalted to His right hand and gave all authority over all creation to reign as King of kings and Lord of lords forevermore. He loves you with a love that never fails. An infinite love. We are loved by our Creator with an infinite, never-ceasing, never-changing love. Yep. That's what He says. You see it with your own eyes. In either black or red. He's praying it right now. That the world may know that you sent me and you love them even as you have loved me. Now, I'm well aware that as a very limited and fallible man myself, anything I could say right now would only take away from the sheer magnitude of these holy inspired words of Christ. Holy Spirit inspired words of Christ. But you must know on the authority of the Word of God, that if you are a Christian, if you, I'm sorry I called you Elbrook. I'm sorry. If you are a Christian, a true, born-again believer in Christ, God the Father loves you the same way that He loves God the Son. O oh soul, are you weary and troubled? The Father loves you even as He loves the Son. O soul, are you weak and heavy laden? The Father loves you even as He loves His Son. No light in the darkness you see, the Father loves you even as He loves His Son. Are you cumbered with a load of care? The Father loves you even as He loves His own Son. Do your friends despise forsake thee? The Father loves you even as He loves His own Son amidst our worst struggles and sufferings and hardships and trials and persecutions and pains and hurts and betrayals and abuse and sickness and diagnoses. Amidst the worst seasons in this temporary and fleeting life, let verse 23 be the firm foundation you stand upon as the winds and the waves of this world come crashing against your house. Your Father loves you even as He loves His own Son. This is why Jesus told them to pray like this, Our Father who are in heaven. Because He is their Father. 
And he is your father. You are his precious son. You are his precious daughter as you sit there this morning. As he loves you with the same love that he has for the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, when all around our soul gives way, this verse right here should be our hope and stay. The Father has an unending, undying, undefiled, unadulterated, unlimited, divine love for you if you belong to Him through the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is good news, amen? Amen. That's right, it's the best news. How then are people not dropping everything to run into, into the ready and willing arms of the Heavenly Father? Well, the good news is, If you're still alive this morning, if you can still still hear my voice this morning, and infinitely more importantly, if you can hear His voice, His call through His Word this morning, you can. I bid you, come to Him this morning. Come to the Father and and place your trust and hope that the destiny of your everlasting soul in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ That you love them even as you love me. That's incredible. That is incredible. Never forget that. And this is followed up with yet another incredible statement, another profound statement in verse 24, which we'll spend all next Sunday on, Lord willing, where Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory that you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. Just as he loved his children and called them from when? Before the foundation of the world. Not just that, notice, not just that they would be where I am, not that they would just be in heaven, not that they would just be in glory, but that they would be with me in heaven. With me in glory. His desire is that we would be with him. Can you believe it? Forever. And we know that's exactly what will happen as he promised it in his everlasting word. Finally, verse 25. Jesus prays, O righteous Father, always perfectly just, perfectly righteous, perfectly holy in everything. That's how we can trust him. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you. And these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and I will make it known, so that the love with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. This is what we mean when we say we are in Christ. Have you ever heard somebody say that? We're in Christ. We are believers in Christ. He is in us. We are in him. Go read the apostolic letters and see how often these words in Christ are are uttered here. Read Ephesians 1 this morning, or or this evening. Read Ephesians chapter 2. It's it's, it's literary with them. Paul, to the saints who are at Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. The Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him from before the foundation of the world. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions. In him... We also have been made an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, to the end that we who have first hoped in in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, 
after listening to the word of truth, there it is again, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance unto the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. And it goes on and on and on like that. And what it means is, what is true of Christ is true of us. How can this be? Well, because he took our place on the cross where he was separated from the first time in all of eternity from his Father so that we would never again have to be. And we took his place in glory where we now receive all of the benefits, all of the mercies, and all of the virtues of Christ, including, as we learned last week, the fullness of his joy. Not just his joy, but the fullness of his joy. Perfect joy. Including life eternal. Including the Father's love. Meaning the Father no longer looks at us as miserable, wretched sinners deserving of nothing more than his everlasting wrath, but he looks at us as his very own sons and daughters, clothed in the perfect righteousness of the eternal Son as if we had lived the perfect life that he lived. This is true of all those who are in Christ. Therefore, even in the who hate what we believe and hate who we believe. Who is our life. Christ who is our life. Christ who even in this prayer greatly anticipates our not only being granted new life by faith in Him, but even everlasting life with Him in heaven. And that's what we'll consider together next week if the Lord wills. Amen? Amen. Let's close now in prayer as Noel and the music team...